Volume One, Chapter Eleven of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Eleven. Still as of old, man by himself is priced. For thirty pieces, Judas sold himself, not Christ. H. C. C. Lent gave way to Easter, and Easter melted into the season, and Mrs. Courtney gave a little dinner party at which John was one of the guests, and Madeline was presented on her marriage, and Di had two new gowns and renovated an old one, and nearly broke Lord Hemsworth's heart by refusing the box-seat on his drag at the meeting of the four-in-hand. And Lord Hemsworth did not invest in the bay mare with the white stocking, but turned heaven and earth to find another with black points, and succeeded, only to drive in lonely business to the meet. And John was to have been there also, but he had been so severely injured in a fire which broke out at his lodgings, in the room below his, three weeks before, that he was still lying helpless at the house in Park Lane, which he had lent to his aunt, Miss Fane, and whither he was at once taken, after the accident, to struggle slowly back to life and painful convalescence. For the last three weeks, since the fire, hardly anyone had seen Colonel Tempest. The old horror had laid hold upon him like a mortal sickness. Sleep had left him. Remorse looked at him out of the eyes of the passers in the street. There was no refuge. He avoided his club. What might he not hear there? What might not have happened in the night? He could trust himself to go nowhere for fear of his face betraying him. He wandered aimlessly out in the evenings in the lonelier portions of the park. Sometimes he would stop his loitering to follow with momentary interest the children sailing their boats on the round pond and then look up and see the veiled London sunset watching him from behind Kensington Palace, and turn away with a guilty sense of detection. The aimless days of waking ghosts of nights came and went, came and went, until his misery became greater than he could bear. The resolutions of the week are as much the result of the period of feeble, apathetic inertia that precedes them, as the resolutions of the strong are the outcome of earnest reflection and mental travail. "'It will kill me if it goes on,' he said to himself. There was one way, and one only, by means of which this intolerable weight might be shifted from his shoulders. He hung back many days. He said he could not do that, anything but that. And then he did it. His heart beat painfully as he turned his steps towards Park Lane, and he hesitated many minutes before he mounted the steps and rang the bell at the familiar door of the Tempest town-house, where his father had lived during the session, where his mother had spent the last years of her life after his death. It was an old-fashioned house. The iron rings into which the links used to be thrust still flanked the ponderous doorway, together with the massive extinguisher. The servant informed him that Mr. Tempest had been out of danger for some days, but was not seeing any one at present. "'Ask him if he will see me,' said Colonel Tempest hoarsely. "'Say I am waiting.' The man left him in the white stone hall, where he and his brother Jack had played as boys. The dappled rocking-horse used to stand under the staircase, but it was no longer there, given away, no doubt, or broken up for firewood. John might have kept the poor old rocking-horse. Recollections that took the form of personal grievances were never far from Colonel Tempest's mind. In a few minutes the man returned and said that Mr. Tempest would see him, and led the way upstairs. 
a solemn, melancholy-looking valet, was waiting for him, who respectfully informed him that the doctor's orders were that his master should be kept very quiet, and should not be excited in any way. Colonel Tempest nodded unheeding, and was conscious of a door being opened and his name announced. He went forward hesitatingly into a half-darkened room. "'Put up the further blind, Marshal,' said John's voice. The servant did so, and noiselessly left the room. Colonel Tempest's heart smote him. The young man lay quite motionless, his dark head hardly raised, his swathed hand stretched out beside him. His unshaved face had the tension of protracted suffering, and the grave, steady eyes which met Colonel Tempest's were bright with suppressed pain. The eyes were the only things that moved. It seemed to Colonel Tempest that if they were closed, he shuddered involuntarily. In his morbid fancy the prostrate figure seemed to have already taken the rigid lines of death, the winding-sheet to be even now drawn up round the young, haggard face. Colonel Tempest was not gifted with imagination, where he himself was not concerned. He was under the impression that the influenza, from which he occasionally suffered, was the most excruciating form of mortal illness known to mankind. He never believed people were really ill until they were dead. Now he realised for the first time that John had been at death's door. That is to say, he realised what being at death's door was like, and he was fairly staggered. "'Good God, John,' he said with a sort of groan, "'I did not know it has been as bad as this.' "'Sit down,' said John, as the nurse brought forward a chair to the bedside, and then withdrew, eyeing the newcomer suspiciously. "'It is much better now. I received callers. Hemsworth was here yesterday. I can shake hands a little. Only be very gentle with me. I cry like a girl if I am more than touched.' John feebly raised and held out a bandaged hand, of which the end of three fingers were visible. Colonel Tempest, whose own feelings were invariably too deep to admit of his remembering those of others, pressed it spasmodically in his. "'It goes to my heart to see you like this, John,' he said with a break in his voice. John withdrew his hand. His face twitched a little, and he bit his lip, but in a few moments he spoke again firmly enough. "'It is very good of you to come. "'Now that I have got round the corner, "'I shall be about again in no time.' "'Yes, yes,' said Colonel Tempest, "'as if reassuring himself. "'You will be all right again soon.' "'You look knocked up,' said John, "'considering him attentively with his dark, earnest gaze. "'Do I?' said Colonel Tempest. "'I dare say I do. "'Yes, people may not notice it as a rule. "'I keep things to myself, "'always have done all my life, but—' It will drag me into my grave if it goes on much longer, I know that. If what goes on? It is all very well for a nervous rider to look boldly at a hedge two fields away, but when he comes up with it, and feels his horse quicken his pace under him, he begins to wonder what the landing on the invisible other side will be like. There was a long silence, broken only by Lindo, John's Spanish poodle, who, ensconced in an armchair by the bedside, was putting an aristocratic and extended hind leg through an afternoon toilet by means of searching and sustained suction. "'I don't suppose there is a more wretched man in the world than I am, John,' said Colonel Tempest at last. 
There is something on your mind, perhaps? Night and day, said Colonel Tempest, wishing John would not watch him so closely. I have not a moment's peace. You are in money difficulties, said John, justly divining the only cause that was likely to permanently interfere with his uncle's peace of mind. Yes, said Colonel Tempest. I am at my wit's end, and that is the truth. John's lips tightened a little, and he remained silent. That was why his uncle had come to see him then. His pride revolted against Colonel Tempest's want of it, against Archie's sponge-like absorption of all John would give him. He felt, and it was no idle fancy of a wealthy man, that he would have died rather than have asked for a shilling. A Tempest should be above begging, should scorn to run in debt. John's pride of race resented what was in his eyes a want of honour in the other members of the family of which he was the head. Colonel Tempest was in a position of too much delicacy not to feel hurt by John's silence. He reflected on the invariable meanness of rich men, with a momentary retrospect of how open-handed he had been himself in his youth, and even after his crippling marriage. "'I do not know the circumstances,' said John at last. "'No one does,' said Colonel Tempest. "'Neither have I any wish to know them,' said John, with a touch of haughtiness. "'except in so far as I can be of use to you.' Colonel Tempest found himself very disagreeably placed. He would have instantly lost his temper if he had been a few weeks younger, but the memory of those last few weeks recurred to him like a douche of cold water. Self-interest would not allow him to throw away his last chance of escaping out of Swain's clutches, and he had a secret conviction that no storming or passion of any kind would have any effect on that prostrate figure with the stern and feeble voice and intense fixity of gaze. John had always felt a secret repulsion towards his uncle, though he invariably met him with grave, if distant, civility. He had borne in a proud silence the gradual realisation, as he grew old enough to understand it, that there was a slur upon his name, a shadow on his mother's memory. He believed, as did some others, that his uncle had originated the slanders, impossible to substantiate, in order to wrest his inheritance from him. How could this man, after trying to strip him of everything, even of his name, come to him now for money? John had a certain rigidity and tenacity of mind, an uprightness and severity, which come of an intense love of justice and rectitude, but which in an extreme degree, if not counterbalanced by other qualities, make a hard and unlovable character. His clear-eyed judgment made him look at Colonel Tempest with secret indignation and contempt. But, with the harshness of youth, other qualities, rarely joined, went hand in hand. A little knowledge of others is a dangerous thing. It shows itself in sweeping condemnations and severe judgments, and a complacent holding up to the light of the poor foibles and peccadilloes of humanity, which all who will can find. A greater knowledge shows itself in a greater tenderness towards others, the tenderness, as some suppose, of willful ignorance of evil. When or how John had learnt it, I know not, but certainly he had a rapid intuition of the feelings of others. He could put himself in their place, and to do that is to be not harsh. He looked again at Colonel Tempest, and was ashamed of his passing, though righteous, anger. 
he realised how hard it might be for an older man to be obliged to ask a young one for money, and he had no wish to make it any harder. He looked at the weak, wretched face with its tortured selfishness, and understood a little, perhaps only in part, but enough to make him speak again in a different tone. "'Do not tell me anything you do not wish, but I see something is troubling you very much. Sometimes things don't look so bad when one has talked them over.' "'I can't talk it over, John,' said Colonel Tempest, with incontestable veracity, softened by the kindness of his tone. But the truth is, nervousness was shutting its eyes and making a rush. I want ten thousand pounds and no questions asked. John was startled. Colonel Tempest clutched his hat and stared out of the window. He felt benumbed. He had actually done it, actually brought himself to ask for it. As his faculties slowly returned to him in the long silence which followed, he became conscious that if John was too niggardly to pay his own ransom, he, Colonel Tempest, would not be the most to blame if any casualty should hereafter occur. At last John spoke. "'You say you don't want any questions asked, but I must ask one or two. You want this money secretly. Would the want of it bring disgrace upon your children?' It nearly said your daughter. "'If it was found out it would,' said Colonel Tempest, in a choked voice. The detection, which he always told himself was an impossibility, had nevertheless a horrible way of masquerading before him at intervals as an accomplished fact. John knit his brows. "'I can't pretend not to know what it is,' he said. "'It is a debt of honour. You've been betting.' "'Yes,' said Colonel Tempest faintly. I suppose you can't touch your capital, that is, settled on your children. No, said Colonel Tempest, there were no settlements when I married. I had to do the best I could. I, I had twenty thousand pounds from my father, and my wife brought me a few thousands after her uncle's death, a very few, which her relations could not prevent her having. But there were the children, and one thing with another, and women are extravagant, and must have everything to their liking. And by the time I'd settled up and sold everything after the break-up, it, was all I could do to put Archie to school. Oh, die, die, cold in your grave these two and twenty years. Do you remember the little pile of account books that you wound up and put in your writing-table drawer that last morning in April, thinking that if anything happened he would find them there afterwards? He had always inveighed against the meanness of your economy before the servants and against your extravagance in private. Do you remember the butcher's book, with thin blotting-paper, the blotted tears as badly as ink sometimes, for meat was dear. And the milk-bills? You're always proud of the milk-bills, with the space for cream left blank, except when he was there. And the little book of sundries, where those quarter-pounds of fresh butter and French rolls were entered, which Anne ran out to get if he came home suddenly, because he did not like the cheap butter from the stores? Do you remember these things? He never knew. He never looked at the dumb reproach of that little row of books. But I cannot think, wherever you are, that you have quite forgotten them. John was silent again. How could he deal with this man who roused in him such a vehement indignation? For several minutes he could not trust himself to speak. "'I think I'd better go,' said Colonel Tempest at last. 
John started violently. No, no, he said. Wait, let me think. The nurse and his aunt came into the room at that moment. Are not you feeling tired, sir? the nurse inquired warningly. Yes, John, said Miss Fane, grunting as her manner was. Mustn't get tired. I am not, he replied. Colonel Tempest and I are discussing business matters which won't wait, which it would trouble me to leave unsettled. We have not quite finished, but he is more tired than I am. It is the pottest day we have had. Will you give him a cup of tea, Aunt Flo, and bring him back in half an hour? When he was left alone, John turned his head painfully on the pillow, and slowly opened and shut one of the bandaged hands. This not altogether satisfactory form of exercise was the only substitute he had within his power for the old habit of pacing up and down while he thought. Ought he to give the money? He had no right to make a bad use of anything, because he happened to have a good deal of it. This ten thousand would follow the previous twenty thousand as a matter of course. Giving it did not affect himself inasmuch as he would hardly miss it. It was a generous action, only in appearance, for he was very wealthy. Even among the rich he was very rich. His long minority, and various legacies of younger branches, which had shown the Tempest's peculiarity of dying out, and leaving their substance to the head of the family, had added to an already imposing income. In his present mode of life he did not spend a third of it. The thought flashed across his mind that if he had died three weeks ago, if the hinges of the door had held as firmly as the shot lock, and he had perished in that room in King Street like a rat in a trap, Colonel Tempest would at this very moment have been in possession of everything. He looked at his own death, and all it would have entailed, dispassionately. That improvident, selfish man had been within an ace of immense wealth, and yet John's heart smote him. His uncle had been genuinely grieved to see him so ill, had been really thankful to think he was out of danger. He had almost immediately afterwards reverted to himself and his own affairs, but that was natural to the man. He had nevertheless been unaffectedly overcome the moment before. The emotion had been genuine. John struggled hard against his strong personal dislike. Perhaps Colonel Tempest had become entangled in the money difficulty at the very time his, John's, life hung in the balance, when he took for granted he was about to inherit all. The speculation was heartless, perhaps, but pardonable. John saw no reason why Colonel Tempest should not have counted on his death. For ten days it had been more than probable, and now he might live to a hundred. Perhaps the probability of his reaching old age was slenderer than he supposed. He lay a little while longer, and then rang the bell near his hand, and directed his servant to bring him a locked feminine elegancy from a side-table, which, until he could replace his burnt possessions, had evidently been lent him by his aunt to use as a dispatch-box. He got out a cheque-book, and with clumsy fingers filled in and signed a cheque. Then he lay back, panting and exhausted. The will was strong in him, but the suffering body was desperately weak. When Colonel Tempest returned, John held the cheque towards him in silence, with a feeble smile. Colonel Tempest took it without speaking. His lips shook. He was more moved than he had been for years. "'God bless you, John,' he said at last. "'You're a good fellow, and I don't deserve it from you.' 
"'Good-bye,' said John, in a more natural tone of voice than he had yet used towards him. "'If you are at the polo match on Thursday, will you look in and tell me how it has gone? It would be a kindness to me. I know Archie and Hemsworth are playing.' Colonel Tempest murmured something unintelligible and went out. He did not go back at once to his rooms in Brook Street. Almost involuntarily his steps turned towards the park. The world was changed for him. The weary, ceaseless beat of the horses' hoofs on the wood pavement had a cheerful, exhilarating ring. All the people looked glad. There was a confused rejoicing in the rustle of the trees and the flying voices of the children playing and rolling in the grass. He wandered down towards the serpentine. Dogs were rushing in and out of the water. An elastic, cock-eared retriever. An elastic, cock-eared retriever undepressed by its doubtful ancestry, was leaping and waving a wet tail at its master, giving the short, sharp barks of youth and a light heart. An aristocratic pug in a belled collar was delicately sniffing the evening breeze across the water, watching the antics of the lower orders with protruding eyes like pieces of toffee rounded and glazed by suction. An equally aristocratic black poodle, Lindo, out for a stroll with the ballet, with more social tendencies, was hurrying up and down on the extreme verge, beckoning rapidly with its short tufted tail to the athletes in the water. The ducks bobbed on the ripples. The children sprawled and shouted and clambered. The low sun had laid a dancing, glancing pathway across the water. How glad it all was! How exceeding glad! Colonel Tempest patted one of the children on the head and felt benevolent. As he turned away at last and sauntered homewards, he passed a little knot of people gathered round a gesticulating open-air preacher. Two girls, arm in arm, just in front of him, were lounging near, talking earnestly together. "'Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee,' bawled the strident, fanatic voice. "'I shall have mine trimmed with tulle and a flower on the crown,' said one of the girls. Colonel Tempest walked slowly on. Yes, yes, that was it. Sid no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. He had always dreaded that worse thing, and now that fear was all over. He translated the cry of the preacher into a message to himself, his first personal transaction with the Almighty. He felt awed. It was like a voice from another world. Religion was becoming a reality to him at last. There are still persons for whom the law and the prophets are not enough, who require that one should rise from the dead to galvanise their superstition into momentary activity. Sin no more. No, never any more. He had done with the sin. He would make a fresh start from today, and life would become easy and unembarrassed and enjoyable once again. No more nightmares and wakeful nights and nervous haunting terrors. They were all finished and put away. The tears came into his eyes. He regretted that he had not enjoyed these comfortable feelings earlier in life. The load was lifted from his heart, and the removal of the pain was like a solemn joy. End of Volume 1, Chapter 11